it's recording, so. I had visions of a Hindu temple. <laughs> Lived in Nashville, I knew what a Hindu temple looked like, so I couldn't wait. I said, I gotta check this out. <laughs> it's good to be here. I appreciate Boyd reaching out to me. I think Bob had said something too about me coming. It's all of you, good to meet you today. and Some of you I've known for a long time. Betsy and I lived in Columbus, Indiana from 1986 to 93. And Bob and Susie were with us then, so I could probably go back with him more than anybody else. And then when we lived in Marion from 1999 to 2005, I'd make the trip down here quite often when you were having study of Psalms. So 15 years later, you're 18 years still studying Psalms. I think you've probably gone back to it, surely. Maybe not, I don't know. It's good to be back here and see you all. I could talk about a number of you, and some of you, it's a joy to meet you for the first time. <coughs> and uh, lived in Kingston Springs and used to preach it. Get invited about once a year. They're in their summer series over at Dixon at Oak Avenue. and Got to be around Tommy's parents. And and some of the boys were living there. Nathan was living there part of the time. So just really good memories. What a, what a fellowship. Thankful for it. So I'm glad to be here today. I'm only about an hour from my house, so it's not too bad. Get up this way. This psalm is amazing to me, and it amazes me because I want to have the attitude the psalmist had. And that was a love for the Word of God above everything else. And I want to keep it, delight in it, incline my heart to it. I want to long for it. I want to trust it. I want to seek it. I want to speak about it. I want to love it. And I want to meditate on it. And those are all words just in these verses. And they repeat themselves in several of this psalm. And I want to have that spirit about the Word of God. And his statutes, his laws, his testimonies, his commandments, his judgments, his precepts. You know, I've done a lot, I didn't do a lot of word studies for this, but uh, sometimes those words seem to be interchangeable. In other contexts, it'll be this same word to be translated this, and in another place, it'll be this, and it kind of all together. And it's just amazing. And I don't remember. Remember when it came to him, uh, you know, I thought, well, that includes Leviticus. <laughs> he loves Leviticus. Who loves Leviticus? Well, I've learned to love Leviticus. You know, and study those laws, read through that, and just kind of trudge through that. I mean, he loved the leprosy laws. <laughs> uh, he loved the sacrifice laws. He loved the, the detail of the tabernacle in Exodus would have been concerned about that and the pattern that was given to him. He loved all of that. and All the food restrictions, he loved that. I wouldn't have loved that. I'm glad I'm not a Jew. It ended my barbecue love. <laughs> <laughs> but he loved those things. He, there's just something about that when God spoke, he valued it. And of course, the psalmist writes these things that you know, he, I think he is talking about primarily the things that God specifically spoke about in the law. 
Sometimes the first five books are referred to as the, as the law of God, but maybe even more specifically when God spoke to his people and said, here's what he expected of them. So I want to have that. I want to fill my heart with God's word so that I have something to think about. And that's a challenge today. That's something you and I are preaching, preaching about. We live in the information age. And we have so much stuff available to us at the fingertips. My wife and I, we settle arguments with this phrase, Google it. (laughs) And I lose some of those arguments sometimes. It's just, we can read and watch and listen and and even among us I, 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 I tell you something I have been thinking about recently is trying to elevate the word of God I'm trying to quote God more I'm trying to quote Jesus more I love preaching I love listening to preaching I've grown up listening to preaching and I I, I remember things preachers said but I want to remember what God says I was around some folks a while back and they were telling me about somebody who just just helped them appreciate grace more than anybody they'd ever read. And sometimes it's, you know, these are good people. And I kind of get that, you know. They tell me, you ought to read this book by this author. I kept my mouth shut and sometimes I think about things later and I thought, you know, I know a fellow who wrote a book about grace. It's probably the best book about grace ever been written. And he wrote about 13 other books that he talked about grace in those. And one of them, he didn't really, we're not sure he wrote it or not. But, you know, I'd really like to value Paul. So we, we elevate men sometimes. I don't mean to get on a soapbox about some of this. But I, my point is... You know, I go, I'm on Facebook, I love quotes, I've taken photos, you know, of, of, you know snapshots of the, of the photos and the quotes, I'm going to work that into a sermon. And I thought, okay, are we quoting Jesus? Are we quoting God? And I think the psalmist could quote God. And that's really where we, our hearts need to be longing to know what he said. So let's fill it. And meditate on it. Think about it. That's a part of this text too. And you've got to have something in here in order to have something to think about. And I think about all the stuff I put in this head early in my life that's worthless. You know, my love for sports. Betsy said, how do you remember that? I said, because that's what I loved. (laughs) It's what I thought about all the time. It's what I lived. I get even with her because then we'll go down the road and listen to some classic rock something from the 70s and she's over there singing word for word. I think, how do you do that? You listen to it a lot. I want the word of God in here. D. Bowman, I don't remember the exact quote, but said one time that when we think about the word of God, we're using our mind in the exact way God created it to be, to do he wants us to be like him he wants us to listen to him follow him love him so he wants that in here and we're forgetful creatures 
why Peter wrote First and Second Peter. Stir up your minds by way of remembrance. So, a continual reading, studying, thinking about the Word of God, filling our minds, so many distractions. Even, even me studying for this. By the way, don't ever ask me again to teach a class the day after taxes are due, okay? Just don't do that. Yes, I had most of it done, but I am just one of those guys, when I owe the government, I'm going to give it to them the last minute when I put a check in the mail. And I put two checks in the mail yesterday. So I'm, I'm thinking about this, but then I'm looking over there, and I, of course, it just, and sometimes I have stuff on my desk, and it's just easy, my mind is easily, your mind and I, my mind cannot think about anything higher than what God has spoken. <clears throat> Two things, when I look at these verses, is the psalmist asked the Lord for help. He asked the Lord, teach me, give me understanding, incline my heart, <clears throat> make me walk, revive me. So in all that he says, he sees the need for God's help. I cannot do this alone. It's dependence upon God and what God has spoken to him. But he also makes some positive affirmations. I want to tell you one thing I've learned in reading the Psalms that I, I think can be helpful to us. How much of our prayers is always asking God for things, and that's a good thing, obviously. But is there times in which we actually say to God, I'm going to do this? Promise Him. Now we're hesitant to do that. Why? It's better to not vow than to vow and not keep the promise. But it's a bold thing to say, I'm going to do this. I will keep your law continually. I will speak of your testimonies. Sometimes I need to say that to God. I'm going to do this. Because it puts the thought in my heart that I don't want to disappoint him now that I promised him I would do this. You know, when my father would ask me to do something, and I said, I promise I'll do this, and he goes to work, and I know the next morning he's going, when he gets up, he's going, no, did, I, did you do this? And I said, you know, I promised him I'm going to do it. And I wasn't, didn't want to disappoint him. So I think prayers need to include some positive statements. Maybe not our public prayers as much, but my own private prayers. When the Word of God comes into my heart and I think of something I ought to do, and I think that happens in these verses. As he's filled with the Word of God, he anticipates telling it to others. And so he promises, I'm going to do that. So, let's do that. All right? So let's look at the text together. I'm going to stop. Please share your thoughts, your comments. Um, Tommy doesn't care about this, but I kidded him just a while ago. I said, why am I teaching Psalms with you here? But anyway, I appreciate his love for the text in the Old Testament and the Psalms. And I 
anticipate his help and all your help and appreciate your humility and all of that his too teach me O lord verse 33 so i believe my task is 33 through 48 and if i miss that it's too bad that's the verses i've studied that's what we're going to do so i think that was what i was given to do teach me O lord the way of your statutes and i shall keep it to the end I want you to notice in these verses, he wants to know, he wants to learn, he wants to be taught God's will so that he can do what? Obey it. To keep it. That's the goal here. We should want to know his will so that we can do his will. You know, we don't study just to know things. We study to do things. We study to carry his will out, to put it into practice in our lives. I th- there are times, you know, knowledge puffs up, Paul said, but love edifies. I can study and know things, but am I doing it? And there are a lot of things in the Bible that I love to study and sometimes I may come across say with this little trivial information and may get to think about it a little bit longer and I see how it fits together in the plan of God. But I do think sometimes there are folks who just like to fill their minds with trivia. You, you know, I've got Bible tri- trivia, you know, trivial pursuit. Remember that? I've got the Bible trivia version of that. And it says where trivia is not trivial. And I don't agree with that. <laughs> I think a lot of the questions they ask are what we would consider trivial. I think I've got some brethren sometimes just like to study just to know stuff. Let's make sure we're doing stuff. I want to know your will. Teach me. The good ground of the parable of the sower represents those who do what? Two things primarily when you remember the text. Those who hear it and the next is keep it, obey it. Those who having heard the word with a noble and good heart keep it and bear fruit with patience. A good and noble heart listens to God but they do what God says. There's a lot of good people, a lot of good hearts. We say, well, he's got such a good heart. Well, I hope so. Be studying with somebody. You haven't yet obeyed the gospel. And someone says, well, they've got a good heart. They're going to prove it or not. They've got a good, noble heart. They're going to listen to the word of God, and they're going to do it. Some people won't because of traditions that fill their hearts, and they just refuse to believed simply the plan of God and said, no, no, I believe this. That's not the spirit of the song. Teach me, show me, so I can do it. Thoughts about verse 33? Yes, Ron? It strikes me that the only thing that's preventing him from doing it is that he doesn't know it. Hmm. You teach me, I'll do it. Uh, and that's, I think that is such a perfect attitude. So many of us are well aware of what God says, but we don't do that. Yeah. But the only limitation is I don't know it yet. That's why I'm not doing it. As soon as I know it, it's completely committed to me. Good point. Very good. I don't know how you all study this. I study it in sections. I 
I understand sometimes a verse-by-verse study, and maybe there's a context, and there is some context here, but again, to appreciate some of the things in specific passages, so please do that. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. There it is again. I'm going to do what? I'm going to keep it. I'm going to observe it with my whole heart. Proverb writer said, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Paul prayed for the Colossians. Remember that? Colossians 1.9, I pray for you and I ask that you may be filled with, and guess what? The knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So we desire the same thing. So tell me what the difference is between knowledge understanding and wisdom knowledge is simply just knowing things what's understanding if there's a progression maybe there's not always maybe there's an overlap in some of these ideas but what does he mean by understanding how would you explain that more like a personal application uh, I, it's not just facts now, it's facts that I'm aware of and uh, can regulate in my life. Okay. Skip Seabreeze here with the group, is he not? Is that right? Who's done worship with you all anymore? Barbara Skill. What? Barbara Skill. Oh, that's right. I don't know why I'm thinking. I knew that. But anyway, I heard Skip do some studies on reading and studying the Bible years ago. And he, you put this in my head, you have facts, and then you have concepts, and then you have application. That's the way the mind works. Intellect, will, emotions, all of that's a part of our, involved in our hearts and minds. But that idea that, you know, I know the facts, but I just haven't put them together. You know, I just don't see how they fit together. And when I see how they fit together, then this light bulb goes off. And then the next thing is, what do I do with this? How do I apply this to my life? So understanding seems to be, I think, that middle one. It's the concept level. We all know people know facts, but they haven't put it together yet. And as they do, and you know what? We help each other do that, don't we? We help each other with wisdom. We... That's why we have elders and shepherds who are able to help younger Christians with the facts about being married and raising kids. Uh, they have wisdom in those regards. So the, the, the psalmist is saying, give me, help me understand. Give me, help me see how this all, how your plan works together. And I'm going to keep it. I'm going to observe with my whole heart. That's, that's absolutely important. You know, God didn't just start in the New Testament. When Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment, he said what? Love God. Love God with? All your heart, soul, mind. Yeah. And he quoted that from Matthew. <laughs> no, he quoted that from Deuteronomy. And by the way, just, just to illustrate again, quoting God. When you're tempted, who do you quote? You quote God. That's what he did when he was tempted. The word of his father came into his heart and said, no, that's not what I'm going to do. 
So again, it's getting this word in our heart. And we love him with our whole heart, our, again, our whole, all of our mind, all of our intellect, our will, our emotion. We, we, all of that's involved. So this, this idea of wholeheartedness is certainly a part of this passage. Let me, let me go ahead a couple passages, then I'll stop and tie this together and let you share some more, please. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Delight in it. Pleasure. We're full of pleasure. A lot of fun things, not just immoral pleasures, but fun stuff, things to enjoy. And even the things that God's created are there for us to enjoy. But do we enjoy even above that? And he's the, the commandments. Make me walk in the path of your command, the, 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 the direction your commandments lead me. That's what I delight in, the path. If we love Jesus, we will keep his commandments. There was a fellow preacher some years ago in the area where I was living. I loved him to death, but I could see the kind of direction he was going. And he ended up, very sadly to me, and taking a lot of positions that are unscriptural and but he said to me one time, he said, we treat the New Testament too much as a code of law like the Jews treated the Old Testament. And I'm running into, you know, with this grace and law debate that's been going on, still goes on. And trying to balance that, or maybe not balance, but how they fit together. But I think I asked one time, if you don't like the word law, do you like the word command any better? <laughs> I mean, if you don't see the New Testament as a book of law, but is it, is it, are there commands in there? <laughs> Paul said, the things I write to you are the commandments of God. So I treat the New Testament. I, I look for God's charge to me, his commands to me, and I want to know them. I don't, am I saved by his grace? Absolutely. But because of his grace, my response to him is, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to obey you. Tom. I think it's a lot of it is a basis who gives the command. Base what? Who gives the command? Is it a belligerent, if it's a belligerent um, employer, you know, I can understand we, we, we uh, pull back from that and coil away. We're talking about a loving God who knows what's best for us. A loving God who knows what's in our best interest. And we're going to view that the same way we view a word from a harsh person who doesn't care about anything except himself. And I, I think it, it just, it all depends on who is speaking. And, you know, we know that anything he, if he tells Israel, everything I commanded you is for your good. In Deuteronomy 6, 20-25, does that not apply today? Mm -hmm. is he, is, was he more concerned about that in the Old Testament than today? I don't think so. So. Very good, very good. In fact, where's it at in this text? Mm -hmm. I'll catch up with that in a minute. But uh, it's right here in front of me. <laughs> Thank you, Tommy. We know His commands to be for our good. You're right. 
God's not a killjoy. Lee, I really, I'm telling you, I don't want you to go out and lie and cuss and have sex and drink and, you know, because I really don't want you to have any fun. You know, I'm trying to rob you of all the joy you can possibly have in life. No, he's not. You find joy in, in, in carrying out his commands and not disobeying him. Well, Tommy's right. Even as parents, we try to communicate that our kids, they don't always get it. And I don't always get it with God because I'm still battling self and this rebellious stubbornness that I think I know better than he does. And God, who would let his son die for me, has let me know this is how much I love you. So I might ought to listen to him. Any other thoughts? 34, 35? Yes, sir. You know, the truth, the truth can be used to build up or destroy. Mm -hmm. I've known some people in the past that, it, in speaking to other people, it come out of such arrogance mm -hmm. and self-righteousness that it destroyed any good that could ever come from the truth. Mm -hmm. can do that. Point well taken, those of us that preach and teach. One little boy looked up at his mother and said, is he mad at us? <laughs> you know, Matt almost sound like he's mad at us all the time. That's a challenge and balance too in, in preaching the hard things and preaching things that need to be preached that we know may not be accepted very well, but how we present it. Paul, what did Paul say? I don't want to be destructive, but edifying. So to your point, he didn't. He said, I could use my authority and I could just destroy you with it, but not, it's not what I go. So good, that's exactly right. How we speak it is important. I'm preaching, Betsy tell you, I'm preaching a lot of times going down the road. My mouth is going like this, you know, no words are coming out. I said, are you preaching to me? I hope not, because <laughs> it's, it's just coming out. This, and every time I'm sitting at home and I'm like, and I'm thinking, okay, now, now stop. Don't let it come out that way. I preached a sermon or two afterwards. Sunday night, I'd come back and say, you know, I'm just not real happy with the demeanor in which that come out, my frustration. But quite frankly, sometimes that frustration is with me more than anybody else, and it comes out. All right. So we understand when we're thinking about God, we've got to submit to a God who has been so patient with us and knows what's best for us. He created us. Incline my heart to your testimonies. The margin of my Bible says, cause me to long for your testimonies. I want to hear your witness. I want to hear the proof that you are God and that you love me and have communicated to me. That's what I want to hear. And not to covetousness. Some suggest here the, the idea specifically in this text is unjust gain. Things you're going to get from dishonesty. You know, Old Testament Proverbs talks about a scales, you know, and you don't want to be honest about it. You don't want to have equal weights so that you know you're, getting, you're treating people fairly. Don't make money off of people by telling them, you know, this is, t this is two pounds. 
and you give them a pound, but you charge them for two. Don't do that. Make money fairly and honestly. But I think, you know, when we think of covetousness, we go further than that. Just the idea of greed, the love of money, longing for things. And he says, I want that to be, and if covetousness is a longing for money, notice the, the parallel here. Help me long for your testimonies and not things. And I'm so thankful that we have no problem with covetousness living in America. Some of us remember very well some lessons Gary Henry preached. I think the first time was 1994. They asked him to do a series of lessons entitled, What's Hurting Us Now? And I think he preached that with a group here. I remember, I don't think I've heard it first time at Douglas Hills. I've heard it, he's preached in other places. And I've got his outlines. They're still hurting us. Materialism. He has one on materialism. Another, our love of fun. Um, another, managing our time. It, it just, and the last one is our lack of evangelism, which he ties to the first three or four. But... We think about that. You want to study? You want to talk about covetousness the rest of the day, rest of the morning? But you know what I want to hear? I want to hear God's testimony about things, money, and stuff. And I'm not always listening to it. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You remember the fellow that in the midst of Jesus' teaching, I, I, I see a guy back here almost just, ah! You know, raising his hand like, can I get your attention for a minute? I got a question for you. Would you make my brother settle this dispute we have about the inheritance? And it's like everything Jesus has been talking about just went. <laughs> and Jesus stops and says, first of all, you've mistaken something here. I didn't come to settle these matters. You're going to have to go get a lawyer or whatever if you need to do that. And by the way, you need to take heed and beware of covetousness because your life is not about the stuff you own. Jesus did that to folks, didn't he? I had a question. I, would, I didn't want you to make me think about me. <laughs> and he does that to us. I'm going to do something a little personal here just for a moment just to share with you. I'm not out looking for sympathy. My father died a year and a half ago. Five or six years ago, I was sitting down with a guy who's helped me with financial matters. And I began, I was thinking about 65 coming up here in about six months, you know, and 70, and how long I'm going to preach, when I'm going to move, and, you know, am I going to be able to take care of Betsy? And, and uh, thinking about things like that. And I told him, I said, you know, when my dad passes away, he's got 153 acres in southern Indiana. So I'll probably, and I kind of done a figure in my head about how much, it's not, price of land in Martin County, Indiana is not great, but, you know, so I just kind of. He had a stroke in January 2021, died in June. He had married for the third time. My mom died, he married again, she died. A year and a half later, he married again. My dad was not going to live alone. 
My sister, on Monday, he died on Friday, on Wednesday was the funeral, and I was preaching the funeral. And she called me up, just fired up. She says, this was third wife, she had the will changed, and she gets all of it. Been married two years. She's all fired up, and now my emotions are stirred up, and I'm, and I preach the funeral, too much of the story. (laughs) Preach the funeral with my sister and her over here, and I'm talking to each other. I didn't know at that point. That turned out not to be true. It was January of 2020, and my dad made the decision to give her everything. And I remember on Tuesday of that week going, okay, Lee, you got a choice here. You can spend the rest of your life being mad at your dad, who's dead, and be bitter. And this passage just went, wham! <laughs> you made all of these plans. And I know, and I'm sorry, I tell you that story because I don't come to me afterwards to talk about it. You know, I mean, I don't know. You know, I've had brethren come to me and say, Lee, that's just sad. I don't think your dad should have done that, blah, 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 whatever. And we can talk about all of that, but that's not necessary. I just accept it. And she sold the place. You know. Dad had asked me one time, you know, about the place. Did I want it? And I dad told him, I said, I'm, I am probably not going to retire in southern Indiana. I have two kids and six grandkids in Alabama, and they're not going anywhere else. Anyway, too much of that, I'm sorry. But the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things entering in choke, choke the word. It becomes unfruitful. I know I'm preaching this mini sermon right out of this. Is advertising making us discontent? You know what advertising does? You can't be happy unless you have this. And that's the way it works. I have a 50 inch flat screen TV. I've had it for 11 years, 10 years. My mom bought bought it for me before I pushed it. So I've had it for 13 years. Still works, still good. What's the ball game on it? You know, I went from I went from 32 inches to 50 inches. I'm like, wow, look at this. And then Betsy takes me to Costco. You know what the first things are in Costco? 85 inch TV. And she says, "Where's the 50 inch? It's down there. It, it, it's way down. It's the last one on the thing." I was content with 50 inches until I went to to Costco. <laughs> If you have an 85 inch, bless your heart. And when my team to the national championship invite me over and I watch it. It just, it happened. And the devils, I have determined the devil's in the marketing business. Because he loves making us discontent. We need to be careful. Be content with such things you have. Don't let your life be full of covetousness, Hebrews chapter 13. So hey, you know how you do that? You fill your heart with the things of God, His testimonies. The, next, the very next verse, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. Worthless, vanity. 
I believe the study of Ecclesiastes is essential today. In fact, I even believe with some people, your neighbors, it might be an opening text to study with them. You know, I think you could be including sinful things here. I think turn my eyes away from looking at worthless, vain things, you know, things we lust after, forbidden things, men are taught. We, we learn from Job, he made a covenant with his eyes, the struggle with men in this day, it's so easy and accessible to look at pornography. Job said, I just made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not gonna look upon a young woman. That didn't mean he never saw them. That means he made a decision. I'm not gonna let myself be drawn away. Yes, sir, Dave. Yeah, that uh, turn my eyes from worthless things is uh, never more prominent than it is. <coughs> I mean, I go home, sit down, and you mentioned sports and lots of, forget all the really sinful stuff, but there's plenty of that on TV too. Uh, yeah. I recall a number of years ago, the gentleman that was uh, credited uh, Inventing the television, everything he lamented before his death that it had gone the way he meant it more for educational purposes and encouraging people and that kind of thing. And it's way off of that most of the time. Okay. Good point. It's it's just there. The opposite. Of that, look at things that give me life. The revive me here. Um, I think later on I noticed the revive is found eight times in this psalm. The Hebrew word is actually found 15 times in this psalm. Revive me. Other places it says, give me life. And that's the picture here. Give me life. Give me what's real. Give me what's lasting. By the way, my, my favorite illustration I give this guys and preachers, you want to do this, you can do it and you can look just as foolish as I do, but it makes a good point. I like to bring a mason jar and say, you know, I collect wind. I was out west, and the wind was blowing through the Rocky Mountains, and I held this mason jar up, and I went, put a lid on it. And I just got this Rocky Mountain wind. And every now and then, I open it up, and I go, and I expect it to blow through my hair. You can do that with a kid. You know, you walk down to one of the kids about second row, and say, I'm going to open this up. I want you to feel something. And they put their hand in there and feel anything. And they say, you don't feel anything? You don't feel that? They looked at that, you're absolutely nuts. That's what God said, you're nuts. You're grasping for wind. You're trying to find real life from stuff. And even wind. So, go ahead and use that if you want. And that's what I learned. I, if there's any part of this text that just jumped out at me, um, it was those two verses, 36 to 37. Establish your word to your servant. Get it settled in my heart. I am devoted to fearing you. Interesting way of putting it. Confirm to your ESV, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Confirm. I want confirmation that what you say is true. Has God given us confirmation that what he has said is true? Sure he has. He gave confirmation to the first century Christians as the word was being revealed to them and miracles confirmed the word. The fact that God has always done everything he promised to do is confirmation. We trust him. He's trustworthy. 
I want him to confirm his promises, especially when my faith is being tested. I want to trust him. I don't understand why this is happening to me. Where, how's this going to turn out? But I trust him. I trust his promises to be true. I fear him. I reverence him. I'm afraid of sinning against him. I don't want to do that. And so because he confirms his promises to me, I have reverence for him. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. When I reproach, turn away my shame, turn away my being disgraced. You know, I first read this. Was he asking God to remove his sins, things that he personally was ashamed of? But verse 42 may help a little bit because he goes on and says, I have an answer for him who reproaches me. Is he asking for deliverance of those who are reproaching him, those who are taunting him, those who are persecuting him? Is that what he's doing? We'll look at that in just a minute. But maybe it's either one. Your judgments are good. There, there's what I was thinking, Tommy. I kind of forgot about it. But your, God's rules are for our good. His justice, good. His judgments are good. We're studying Second Samuel in our Bible class, and we just went through the story of Uzzah. And skeptics love stories like that. This is not a God I want to serve. But they don't see the whole, the bigger picture, do they? They don't understand the big picture why God would do things like that. What? His judgments are good. Every act of justice was what was needed. And God was patient with folks. So he says in verse 40, I'm going to stop there, but I, for I long for your precepts. Again, I long for them. Revive me. Make me alive again. In your righteousness, give me life, the ESV says here. And you remember Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit. They are life. Fill our hearts with his words. Thoughts or comments down through verse 40, please. Yes? I noticed that um, in the stanza, each of the verses except the last one is a request. It begins with a request to God. Incline, turn away, establish, turn away, etc. And so, to your point at the beginning, he's asking for God's help in these things, and God will certainly give us that help. Right. Very good. Yeah, that's a, exactly right. <coughs> it also seems to me that I, I think it's interesting that a lot of the help is help in knowing His will, doing His will. But it seems like to me the very process of being informed about God and His will is part of the process of turning away our eyes from vanity in verse 37. The, the more we cherish His Word, the brighter that light grows before us. The dimmer the lights of sin and ungodliness look by comparison. And also, you know, the, the Word has an impact in just turning us away from sin or letting sin lose its appeal or attraction. And it also, in verse 38, produces reverence 
for God. If we want to stand in reverence of God, if we want to stand in awe of God, just acquaint ourselves with Scripture. You know, immerse ourselves in that. And, and like you said before, sometimes men can write good things, but they're not equivalent of this. And they're only good as they compare and measure up to this or somehow bring out something we've missed that was already here. Right. That it was just something we, we missed. Right. And but it can but the words of the of the Lord can produce reference. Very good. Well wow. I just after finishing the section and reflecting on I was still hung up on understanding. Not hung up, but just meditating on it. And something that I've always uh, kind of used in the place of understanding is the concept that what God wants us to want and seek and pursue is seeing with God's seeing what God sees and hearing what God hears and saying what God says, mm-hmm. speaking what God speaks. To me, that is understanding. And when you think about that, when you read this, that's exactly what the psalmist is asking for. To be pleasing to God is to understand His will for Him. And that's when we teach our children, we ask them oftentimes, after we, we teach them something, we say, do you understand? And, and that's the thinking, I think, that is, is perched here for us to develop uh, uh, the, a, a nature of God within us. And uh, that's what God wants in us. If we're doing that, we're going to be pleasing to Him in all these things. Very good. Ron? Verse 35, I'm curious about. Tell me if you get the same sense. Uh, He says, Make me go on the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. I always do what I delight in. So why does he have to make me (coughs) walk in those paths? Because I delight in them. Uh, Suggests to me the idea that he's saying, I don't know that I delight in them. Until you make me walk in them, and I spend my time observing your will, then I realize I delight in them. Mm. And that's the thought that came to my mind. It may be totally different in different versions that didn't come off that way, but uh, the delighting seems to come after he made me do it. And, and now I recognize it. Well, that was great. <laughs> you made me think you know, whether or not what the intent of the passage is, it's okay to obey God when I don't necessarily feel like doing it. I mean, if I only do God do God's will when I feel like it, love your enemies. Have a warm, fuzzy feeling about them. No, I'm going to do good. But in the process of doing good, do I feel good? I, I just think it's so true. I think we, the conscience makes us, we feel guilty when we do bad, but it's okay to feel good when you do good. That's what the conscience says. So to your point, Ron, I, I, I see that. I, I, I relate to that when I think about times where, you know, I've even heard brethren say simple things like, I'm just tired, it's Wednesday, I've been working all day, I just, I didn't want to go. But I got there, and what did they say afterwards? Glad I did. Glad I came. They just benefited from the being there. So if we're always just waiting to feel good about it before I respond to God's commands, then maybe some things will neglect. 
that's not to make the point that I'm just going to, how long can I keep doing what he wants and just grudgingly, you know, just, no, I think you're right. I think we begin to delight and we see the benefit of doing what he asks. Good point. Yes. In verse 36, uh, I think one of the translations you referenced said, give me a desire uh, for your testimonies. And so he's not saying I have no desire because in verse 34, he del- 35, he delights in it. And again, in verse 40, he longs for God's precepts. But our desires kind of go up and down and sometimes they aren't what they need to be. Sometimes they're they are what they need to be, and so um, those requests are timely, depending on where our hearts are at the moment. Very good. I was told I had about an hour and a half, and I want to wear you guys out. And so we got we we didn't get started about fifteen after, but uh, so do I go on, Boyd? Keep on. Do I need to finish this, or do I need to stop and let you guys do this next time? I don't want to hurry through it. Let your mercies come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. You know what? In all of this, you know what he needed? He still recognized he needed? Mercies and salvation. Now maybe the salvation in this, sometimes the psalmist David would write about it, delivers from his enemies. Save me from this difficult situation I'm in. Think about how much higher salvation we've found in Christ. Greater than that, and that's salvation from our sins. Um, he knew his need for mercy. I heard one guy say mercy's in plural because it's mercy piled on top of mercy. He just needed a whole lot of it. And again, salvation may have been the context being saved from his enemies, those who taunted him, railed on him, mocked him, persecuted him. Again, see the next verse. So maybe that's what he's asking for. To be able to respond to them, to answer them. In fact, in you know, reading this, let your mercies come to me, your salvation according to your word, so shall I have an answer for him who reproaches me, taunts me, for I trust in your word. So it seems to me what he's saying is, I want to be able to answer those who are... are if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And, and, and he's crying out for his father. Let's see if God has anything to do with it. His father has anything to do with him. As they said to Jesus on the cross, taunting him, railing on him. What did Jesus go ahead and do? He went ahead and died for us. Died for them. Father, forgive them. Deliver me from my enemies. Deliver me from Satan. His father did that. He only had to hang there six hours, thankfully. He died. And then God raised him from the dead. What am I willing to suffer because of what I believe and who I believe in? Am I willing to be face trials and difficulties because I trust his word? And by the way, did you hear a passage when he says, Shall I have an answer for him who reproaches me? We're to be prepared to give an answer, a defense. For those who ask us a reason for the hope that is in us with meekness and fear, 1 Peter 3. And 1 Peter is trying to encourage people who are being persecuted. And so people are coming to these Christians and say, why in the world tell me, why would you be willing to die for this guy? Why are you willing to be beaten? 
Why are you willing to be made fun of and mocked? Who is this Jesus? Tell me about him. Why do you trust him? Well, I believe in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection because God has not left himself without witness and because he has given me many proofs of his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 15. My faith is reasonable. I've reasoned and looked at the evidence and believe that he is, he is the Son of God. And I trust him. So the psalmist says, I need these. I need your mercy. I need your word so that I can give a defense to those who are mocking me. And don't take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I've hoped in your ordinances. What's he asking for the Lord here? Maybe he's asking for vindication in the eyes of those who taunted him. Asking for judgments, your ordinances. Some translations ordinance here is judgment. He has spoken the truth and God proved it to be true by judging his enemies. Jesus judged the devil at his resurrection, condemned him. You have no more power. And he showed him and anybody who wants to follow him who is greater, given us witness. When we speak truth, we want people to believe it and people taunt us about it. We're not asking for it to be lost, but we want God to, to vindicate us so that, you know, people in the day of visitation, I've been thinking, Peter here, the day of visitation will glorify those who serve the Lord. When he judges his enemies, judges those that taunt his people. Thoughts or comments about verses 41 through 43? Verse 42, I couldn't help but think of the apostles rejoicing at having the opportunity to suffer for the Lord. That's right. Was that Acts 5 when they were beaten? The council said, you need to pre- quit preaching this. They beat them, they rejoiced. Which was an actually, which demonstrates how true the resurrection was to them, because those same guys on Saturday were hiding for fear of their life, and one of them was saying, "I don't know who this is." Three times, and yet later on, they're willing to say, "I'm willing to die for this." I, I think that's the greatest evidence, and in, in my study of the evidence is the resurrection. For me, the greatest evidence is the eyewitness testimony of twelve men that were willing to die for it. That gets me segueing into another into that whole subject, but it's a grand subject to think about. That God's given us many proofs, the King James says, or proofs of his resurrection. What are those? And one of those is the eyewitness testimony of guys who didn't believe that the death of Jesus had was a part of the story. And that they were convinced. They went out and told people, We've seen him, we've handled him, we touched him, first John chapter one. And if you want to kill me, if you want to put my head down here and take my head off, James chapter 12. You know, I would think that one of the 12 being killed for his faith would have made the other 11, if it's all of this, it's a joke, it's a lie. It's a... We're done. <laughs> We're done. I remember Charles Colson, who was part of the Watergate, you know, you young guys. <laughs> 
you know, we think about political difficulties. How about the early 70s, <laughs> the late 60s, early 70s? But Watergate, you know, Nixon and the break-in of Democratic headquarters. And Colson had this conversion experience when he was in prison because he was one of his men, one of Nixon's guys. And he made the point in prison. He wrote in his book called, I think, The Body. He said, you know what? We all began to admit one by one we were a part of it. We admitted we were guilty. He said that was just reasonable as this began to play out. We just had to tell the world. Yeah, we did. As they began to be imprisoned and chest tried. And, and he said, you know, that made me think. Twelve guys. Never once stopped and said, this didn't happen. They were willing to suffer. Not for a lie, but for truth. All right, done with that. We've talked about evidences a lot. It's good stuff. And I've benefited from a lot of other people who've helped me with that. So, I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. That's interesting. I will walk in a wide place, ESV. I seek your precepts. I seek your ways. I will walk at liberty. What, what's going on there? Uh, uh, Sometimes another word for liberty is freedom. So he just said he's free in Christ to do whatever he wants. No. He's at liberty to do what God says, but there's liberty, there's freedom. Again, sin enslaves us, and there's a picture of, I am free to obey the Lord. I'm free to follow His will. True freedom is living a life in obedience to the Word of God. That's genuine freedom. You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free, John 8. Sometimes boldness is the idea of freely. I think of Hebrews 4.16. Come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need. Come freely. Come in any time. Not like in the Old Testament. You had to have an invitation even if you were his wife. Why well, Esther didn't want to go in. But this king we serve, you can come in. Three o'clock in the morning. Anytime. Come boldly. We have that freedom. Listen to this. See if this doesn't sound a little bit what we're looking at in this text. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as servants of God. 1 Peter 2, 15, 16. I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Tell me you haven't thought about some passages in the New Testament. I know Boyd looks up here and I know he has on and and you have think of passages, think of what Jesus told the disciples. Watch out for yourselves, or deliver you up to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues, you'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And guess who had the most opportunities, at least recorded in scripture, to do that? Paul. And this is what, Je- what Jesus told Ananias when he was told to go to priest to, to teach Paul, teach the gospel to him. Go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, children of Israel. I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I think the, the, the psalmist here is saying, I want to keep your law forever. I want to walk in the freedom that you've given me, your mercies, your salvation. I seek your precepts. And I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to speak these testimonies before kings. And I will not be ashamed. 
ashamed to say that I've been ashamed too often to speak up for Jesus. I ought not be ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed to suffer. Paul told Timothy, don't be, don't be ashamed. In fact, he said, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. I wonder if Timothy needed to hear that. Probably. Timothy, preach the truth. Yes, I'm in prison. And I'm probably going to die this time. Fourth chapter, Second Peter, t Timothy. It's my time is here. I think a time when I haven't, and I don't mean just publicly preaching, but I have opportunities to talk to people about Jesus, and sometimes knowing that it could be confrontational. And I shy away from it. And I wonder if Jesus is saying to me, Lee. Look what the apostles did. Look at who they had a chance to preach and teach. I'm just asking you. I'm not telling you you're going to have a chance to talk to the President of the United States. But I'm telling you you need to talk to your neighbor about me. Are we ashamed? Are we afraid of being persecuted? You know, we live in a, a sad time a lot of ways. A lot of challenges with the LGBT issues. If you told me 40 years ago I was going to have to do a lesson on being transgender, I thought, what in the world are you talking about? I've got brethren say, you need to talk about this. How do, how do we handle it? How do we treat people? I've got a niece, 24 years old, going through, decided she didn't want to be a girl anymore. How'd they get there? What happened? But when I think about, and, and maybe that, but then I, I look back at the at the, the gay community, the homosexual issues. And I have a Bible study on two on Thursdays with one of our members and a fellow he invited, and I was in Panera Bread. We're doing Panera Bread. The lady behind the counter was wearing, you know, pride shirt with a Panera logo on it. And I'm standing there in line, people behind me, and you know, it's one of the most, do, do I have to, do I, 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 I need to say something to this lady? I don't know how the best way to do that because, you know, well, what if she didn't have that on, but okay, well, I don't have to talk to her. <laughs> but because she got a shirt on, I need to say something to her. You know, I, people all over me aren't wearing the shirts that still need Jesus, you know, for a lot of other reasons. But I, I just wonder, what would be a good thing to say to her? To maybe open the door. And you know what I don't want to, I, I mean, is the woman going to just get mad and spew out stuff? And, am I afraid of being persecuted because I say, can I ask you a question? You know, do you believe in Jesus? Believe in God? But I, I don't like the moments like that because I want to have time to discourse, you know. But you see what I'm saying? Do we have a chance to talk to people? Am I ashamed of the testimony of Jesus? Sometimes I have been. I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. Again, the question is, what do I delight in? What do I love? If I delight in the commandments of the Lord. And they're for our good. I've read books about homosexuality. I read Lagarde Smith's book years ago. And I've got folks asking me to read books on the transgender issue. And, you know, one thing I'm hearing repeatedly is that within five years, everybody who does is going to regret the decision. The suicide rate is higher than in that class of people. And it's just, it's just sad. 
And I think I can use that, you know. My niece has refused to talk to me. I, I wrote her a note, and I thought it was kindly said. I just, I'd like to sit down with you. I'd like to talk with you. Tell me why you're where you are. And I found out from her sister. She just took the letter and burned it, literally burned it. I just, I, I just want to know if you believe in God. You know, you're raising the church. Why are you there? That's all I want to do. Just tell me how you got there. And I think what she basically happened to her, she just lost her faith in God. I'm not sure she believes in God anymore. And so that, that, that hurts me. That's, that's, there's a lot worse persecution than having your niece burn the letter you sent her. But I'm going to try. I may try again. But I love the Lord. I love her. I want to, I want, I want to teach her. I want to show her. I want to speak these testimonies. And then finally, let, let me stop. I want to make comment or two about verse 48. Thoughts or comments about this? About this section? Only one thing came to my mind in uh, verse 43 when he says take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. I think uh, what he's asking for is let me be so saturated with your word that when I speak it's your word that's coming out. It's in my heart. It's my delight. And particularly, I need that to come out when I'm being reproached. Because my tendency is eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, slap for a slap. Right. I'm going to say as nasty as he says. Right. And so don't let your word come be anything else. Just your word comes out of my mouth. Or talking to kings. Now we're talking to authority figures. People who are important, people who are impressive. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Make sure your word comes out of my mouth. And what you're describing, I've got a preacher friend whose daughter has turned to the Methodist church, uh, grew up in the church, uh, been baptized, went to Florida College, uh, Tommy knows her, and uh, she has turned to Methodist church, and uh, I'm confident that eventually we'll be accepting homosexuality, maybe not in her personal life, but accepting it as an acceptable lifestyle. Uh, because that's what's causing the Methodists to split up right now, this, this debate. And uh, she has just turned her back on everything, and uh, he can't hardly talk to her. And uh, that's just, the tendency is to get mad and to say something other than God's Word. And grateful for him that that's all he's done. He just keeps responding to, what does the Bible say? What, what does this mean to you? Uh, what has God done? And so on and so forth. Uh, because she's claiming to be religious, uh, just totally away from what God's truth is. But uh, I think that idea of keeping his word in my mouth is that is what I always respond with. Great point. No matter what it says. Great point. I think sometimes they're the angry ones. They're militant and angry with us. And to have that conversation and have the spirit of Christ is a challenge. Another key word there is truth, isn't it? Guess what? Postmodernism. It's where we live. You know, if there is no truth, if there is no God, do what you want. You can decide you're a boy and do whatever you want. And I can try to show you just leave God out of the picture and here's where this ends up. And I think that's how we're trying to save some folks before they make the decision. But eventually I'm going to come back. And I, I kind of know where I'm going to end with that study when I'm asked to talk about why we are where we are and how well, I have all the answers to that. I certainly don't. 
But at the end of it, the answer is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. Can a man put away his life for any cause? Well, let's go back about the beginning. How God designed us. If God is creator, then I think we ought to listen to him. And as Tommy's point earlier, he knows what's best. And on sexuality, it's not, a, it's not even a... Okay. The guard points out in all the research, it's not a happy lifestyle. It's not a gay lifestyle. All right? So we try to reach people. We're trying to, we're trying to talk to people. And if it's kings or neighbors or whoever it is, and boy, Ron, I think of Jesus, you know, Paul before Felix, you know. What do he tell them? Self-control. Judgment to come. Righteousness. Righteousness. Self-control. I was trying to thank you. Help me out. Yeah. That righteousness, self-control, judgment to come. That's what he told a king, a governor. I think that's probably because of what that Felix what he needed to hear. It turned out then he wasn't persecuted by Felix. But Felix is one of the, you know, we studied with us some folks, and you know what? They just say, well, that's interesting. Thank you. Maybe later. Last one. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. I read that and, and just kind of finishing up this morning and went, oh, that's great. I needed that help. This year in our, our theme for the year is when our children ask. And so we're having our children put questions in a box. And J.D. and I are answering those questions. And it's been really interesting. And one of the questions is, why don't we raise our hands when the Bible tells us to raise our hands in holy prayer? So I'm going to preach on that. I'm going to be kind about it because first of all, it's not quoted correctly. <laughs> he didn't say holy prayer. He said raise up holy hands in prayer. And I think of this passage, 1 Timothy 2, 6, is where that's eight coming from. Therefore, I desire that men pray everywhere, lifting up my holy hands. Lifting up holy hands. And uh, so I've already been working that over my head, so I'm not going to preach that sermon to you, but to say a couple things about it. But I know when I turned over to 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8, I noticed that I had written on the side Psalm 148, 119.48. So somewhere along this got in there. I'm going to make a couple points when I do this lesson. It's not about posture. Why don't we pray with our head bowed and our hand beating on our chest? Why don't we do that? Why don't we get on our knees? Holiness is about obedience. It's lifting up obedient hands. And it's not even necessarily talking about literally raising hands up as much as this, I'm holding up to God. I want, to, I want my hands to be lifted up to your commandments. I want you to look at my hands and see a guy who's doing what you say. Psalm 18.24 is a similar idea in thinking about this. Uh, I know you know, questions like this are coming up in recent years about this and um, just raising our hands. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. Cleanness of my hands. There's no sin. My hands are clean. I offer up to you my life. <clears throat> I believe holiness is seen in obedience, not a posture, it's not a 
<clears throat> anyway, you can help me with that later after we dismiss if you want to or talk about it now. But you got been very patient, Ron. One thought came to my mind yeah. is that that's the exposure of the hands. You know, the ancient culture, we, we now shake hands, mm. that started with the idea that I put my hand out, you see there's not a weapon in it. Mm. And therefore, uh, I'm a friend. And so we, we have the same thing. Well, I'm exposing my hand. And when I lift up holy hands, God, you see, I've not been sinful. I'm not doing something behind your back. And that's really more the idea than uh, posture, as you, as you suggested. But, but it is the idea of, of worship. I'm trying to get closer to him. And by, by me being cleansed, he sees that I am I'm trying to do that. I think part of it is our brethren being influenced by culture. And some of it, you know, again, whether right or wrongness of it is, you know, going to serve, and we're not, we're not, we're no longer talking about prayer, we're talking about songs. And then it begins to be this, and it begins to be swaying, it begins to be an, an emotional release or expression of what's in our heart, perhaps. And I think they see that, so why, why can't we do that? And so here we are answering those questions. But yeah, I do I do think Lee, and I think this may be where you conclude too with some of these passages. I think it would be a hard thing to say you can't do it when you see so many passages say to do. But at the same time, it's not tied to a super spirituality, or does it give you a special feeling, or something like that? I think that's that's the. That's the concern people have too, because people act like, "Well, I just had this feeling when I did this." But that, what does that have to do with it? You know, I mean, uh, but you—I mean, that's not the thing. I, I was wanting to say is on something you said earlier about the encountering the lady behind the desk. Yes, this is my thought on something like that, and this is not something I practice perfectly, but I have tried to practice, is to be preemptive in situations by wearing a shirt with a verse of scripture on it, or wearing a hat that has Jesus, or something like that. When you've done that, you've already made a response. And, and um, you know, I have, uh, I've tried to do that, and, and, and I, I will say that a lot of times I get positive comments. I haven't gotten a negative comment yet. I mean, I'm sure there's been negative thoughts, <laughs> but, but I haven't gotten a negative comment directly. And I, I just, but I think, in a sense, their boldness, to be standing for something wrong should inspire us to be bold and standing for what's right. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, just make a, you know, make some kind of a, of a statement ourselves that that's, that, that that's who we follow, that that may be more important than wearing our sports team shirt or, or something like that. That's just, and again, I'm not saying I've always practiced that, but I've practiced that in some busy places and, and where a lot of people see it and, and, and it's not been a negative thing.
And we kind of live in a culture too that, well, that's good for you, and that's good for me, you know. I'm glad you, yeah, I, 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 I'm glad you believe that. Yeah, I believe yeah. this, you know. Until you, you want to progress, but we're just looking for some interest. Yeah. Maybe that person on the other side of the counter has got questions. And uh, they're. But my other point is, why don't I do that when they're not wearing a shirt? And I do that with waitresses at restaurants. I try to engage them and talk to them. You go to church anyway. You believe in Jesus. I was at a restaurant with Gary Kerr. He stopped to eat lunch with me. We were eating together. I took him out of the restaurant. The lady came up and I asked her, I said, you know, you go to church anywhere? You ever study your Bible? She said, well, I got to tell you, I just realized that I'm a spiritual medium. And Gary said, I wish I had a camera to take a picture of your face. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> Sometimes I don't have a response, but I'm just dumbfounded, you know. Not exactly what I was expecting. My, all of my brethren told me that the things I should have replied, one of them kind of smart, I think I should look at him and said, okay, tell me what I'm going to order today. <laughs> but, but to genuinely ask her, where did I, you know, I got thinking later, I'm just like, that. where did that come from? Why, why do you believe that? Why, why do you want to talk to the dead? I got a guy I'd like for you to talk to. He was dead once, about three days, he's lying. Yeah, just, I just try to think, and I, I'm just not quick about it, guys. I'm just not. I, th I think, though, I will say, the fact you brought it up in the first place, Sometimes you don't know the perfect response. Sometimes you sit there and do silence. But it doesn't mean that's a complete failure. Right. Right. You brought the subject up. Right. You brought the subject up. You made her think about it. And and uh, yeah, maybe that'll prepare you better for the next time <laughs> somebody's a spiritual. But the fact, if anything is worth doing, it's worth doing for me. You're interested quoting you or you're quoting him. Well, I, I, don't, I may know who I was quoting, but the point is, you know, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing when you, before you get everything in the right life. So. I'll tell you something else. That lady probably would have talked about that to somebody else later in the day. Somebody asked me if I believe in Jesus. I'm trying to do that more. I, I know we're at 10:30. I got all day, guys. You might not have all day. So we got probably got real got real jobs. I got a real job too. <laughs> My brother asked me sometimes. I was wondering if you were going to say it. You're spiritually small or large when she said she was medium. <laughs> <laughs> do that too. That probably wouldn't work. Listen, <laughs> I fight my sarcasm loyally, <laughs> and so I don't want to necessarily come out that way. Anyway, um, and I bring it up because this text does talk about it. I, I want to talk to others about your testimonies. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, when you're out in a public uh, restaurant and have a prayer before a meal, once in a while somebody will come from another table and say, hey, I appreciate you doing that, even though they may not all the time. We even had, I always tell somebody that uh, when we went out to eat one time, we had something happen to us that I, Pretty sure that never happened to you in your lifetime. Oh, what's that? What's that? And I said, when we got ready to say a prayer, our, our server came over and joined hands with us if we could pray with us. And I said, never had that happen wow. that one time. And so wow. we were all 
held hands together with our server and having prayer for them. I'll sometimes go over to the table and I'll see somebody else pray. Yeah. And I'll say something to them. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate your praying and I, this is my worship. I give cards out. I got cards I give to people. Brandon Green said nobody's ever showed that because of cards. But by him. And Brandon's a great personal worker. Um, David Tan's another example to me. And I've used him example all the years. I mean, David used to carry stuff with him. He went to restaurants. He was handing people, you know, sewer falls, you know. And he was just doing it all the time. And he found people, you know, and he brought people to the Lord. And uh, we think we've got to get to know people. And Jesus talked to a woman at the well in John 4, and he had never met her before in his life. How many people do we have personal relationships with? I mean, it's that we use different methods of evangelism with different people. And you see it all the time in the New Testament, like you're saying, you're talking to people you don't know anything about. Yeah. And the when I hear people say, oh, no, evangelism is only talking to people we know well. Well, yeah, that just frees you of responsibilities to about 98% of the world or 99% of the world. Right. I mean, but anything that has ever been done, however feeble, however poorly conceived, has some with somebody worked and brought them to the Lord. Was handing a card at the table. I know of a person that was just calling, making, asking everybody to church in the phone book. And they got a convert from that. Somebody they had no knowledge of. And and so I mean, who are we to tell anybody, don't try this particular thing? Yeah. You know, because God can take the littlest seed and let it produce fruit to a good person. My head's full of stories. Doing this a little while, thanks be to God. But my favorite story is again, the week of Gospel Eve, somebody handed the local preacher, you know, a piece of paper and said, I'd like to go, go visit this person this week. And then kind of after about Thursday, he kind of forgot about it, and he took it. And he went out and said, let's go visit this person. So he went over and knocked on this door. I think it was kind of got later, and the lady came, maybe she's already her doctor or whatever. She knocked on the door and said, man, we just thought somebody knew he might be interested in the gospel, and I'd talk to, talk to you about the Lord. And she said, well, come on in. They talked to her about the Lord, and they visited that time. She went out and looked at it, it was the wrong address. <laughs> <laughs> Was <laughs> it the one that's given to us? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, when I started thinking about conversion and providence, I think that's what providence, when I, my brother excited about providence, I see providence working in conversions. Um, preachers in Marion now, two preachers there, Scott Hafer and Taylor Ladd. Do one. Taylor Ladd. Thank you. I just spent three hours with him the other day for the first time. I can't remember his name. But sitting down with him and his wife talking, she went to school somewhere in the northern part of Minnesota. wasn't a Christian. Went up there, didn't know anybody there. Didn't know her roommate. Guess what? Her roommate is a Christian. Taught her, converted her, met Taylor, married him. There she is. I don't know if anybody's praying, but I'm going to sit back and say, okay, Lord, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps. For such a time as this, you know, I think, how did that work? God could do that. But, on the other hand, he uses us too. I appreciate you guys. It's been a joy to be with you today. So.
And I'll try to come up when I'm not teaching. So Tuesday's my busiest day. I have a Facebook video in the morning, a Bible study at 12.30, and a Bible study at 7 that day. So that's part of the reason sometimes I don't come up. I got a lot going on. JD's out of town today, so we don't have the study at noon. And tonight we don't have the study when 25th Street has a meeting. Wilson Adams is in town, so the Church Hills have a study at their house. I'm teaching that. Tonight we canceled that so they can go to the meeting. So I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Scott, would you leave us in the prayer? Yes. Holy Father, thank you for allowing us to meet here today. Thank you for Lee's guidance in the study, for his wisdom and experience. For all the men that are here and the things that they contribute, we thank you for them. We live in troubled times. We wonder if your hand is guiding these events and we hope that you will help us to put our hand in to help form some of the opinions, some of the ideas, some of the events. We hope that you'll help us to be brave, take some of this message to our congregations and help form some of the things which are happening and perhaps guide events more in a biblical way. Help us to be humble. We know that's the one thing you do admire about us when we exhibit it. We don't always show enough of that and we pray that you'll help guide us more in that path. We thank you for your son who went to the cross willingly in order to save us and give us the chance of eternal life. Thank you, dear Lord, and help those who are traveling to have a safe journey. And we thank you again for Jesus and his sacrifice. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 And I did, I did not mean to cut you off on the lifting hands, but that's just my, I was just stating my conclusion. And y'all, y'all may disagree. Put your hands down. <laughs> so I, was, I, I was in my Facebook video one day, and Brownie said, Lee, it looks like this yeah. the whole time. Yeah. You know, the put whole, your hands down. The waving hands. No, but I